Hello and welcome to Art Monthly's radio show. I'm Chris McCormack, assistant editor for the magazine, and today I'm joined by Gilda Williams, a writer and lecturer at Goldsmiths, and Omar Khalif, a writer and curator of Whitechapel Gallery. Omar will be discussing the Berlin Biennale and how it consolidates trends as opposed to challenge or upend them. But first, uh, Gilda's fe- feature this month looks at the work and influence of Andy Warhol. Easily one of the most discussed and written artists about in the last 50 years, Gilda, in her current feature about his work, tries to unpick him from the otherwise stifling term, and in some ways erroneous term, of pop. Mm. I wondered if we could start by talking about uh, Andy Warhol's initial context in New York and how that led him to being associated with pop at that time. Uh, well, he was, of course, very ambitious. Uh, it was not easy for him to work, to shift from a commercial uh, graphic artist uh, kind of context. And I think he would have done just about anything mm-hmm. for uh, acceptance in the gallery world. He wanted, uh, originally it was just in Los Angeles, he had his first show, and, and, and that was kind of a consolation prize. Really what he wanted was exposure in New York. And so when Henry Geldzoller and his uh, cohort were willing to absorb him, Mm -hmm. uh, he was more than willing. Uh, And it worked for him. And and pop was an easy way to um, have a sort of concise understanding of everything he did. And he he could hide behind it. You know, it made a lot of what he did look a lot lighter and less threatening, I think, than in fact uh, the implications of a a lot of what he did. It worked for him as well with any question because I suppose in my mind I think about that time of 50s 60s New York and how abstract expressionism was such a kind of predominant scene in so many ways and I think even I have this story in my head of the two different bars that existed downtown one that where the abex artists used to hang out and you know they drink their whiskeys I guess and talk about you know existential problems and then the sort of you know the pop art side which I'm guessing is champagne and sort of cocktails yeah (laughs) although they were you know he was the only gay one so he had to kind of uh, wear as many beards and ties as he could to Mm -hmm. get the acceptance Uh, but at the same time like everything with Warhol there's there's contradictions so why would he be making such obviously uh, homoerotic films and he he, it's never very uh, simple to understand what he did the thing that I I feel is that all the most in the last say 20 years the most interesting ways into his work whether it's uh, queer theory or film theory um, are much more productive than what a lot of um, sort of straight art history has been able to accomplish because I think pop um, is unable really to mm-hmm. take into account so much of what he did, and so I think to get rid of it is just is just a productive way. You can think about him in terms of form and, and style and all kinds of iconography and all kinds of ideas that um, we usually assume are not worth applying to his work. And in fact, they, you know, they're very very productive. Because mm, you talk a lot about the diversity of the technology that he was using at that time, all throughout his life, really. Uh, you know from sort of stereo Walkmans to, you know, the first person to use a video camera? Yeah, well, the first person ever, well, to use a sort of portable tape recorder, one of the first people on Earth ever to do that and was uh, donated very, very early um, machinery and equipment to do that uh, for free. He was very mm-hmm. good at getting things for free, getting people to do things <laughs> for him for free and to give him things for free. Um, yeah, he was absolutely uh, very, very curious about new technologies. Um, uh, the cover of another art magazine this month, yeah. uh, you might have noticed, uh, there's an article by Corey Archangel on his computer graphics, which are incredibly primitive and um, 
backward in, in sort of 1982 or 83 mm-hmm. or something. Uh, but he would have, uh, as I as I write about, he'd have loved the 21st century. It was absolutely everything that he had was was looking for. He could be everywhere all at once and documenting everything permanently, or he could uh, somehow time capsule and preserve everything. It was really, uh, you know, the prophetic that the endless screen yeah. uh, was, of course, uh, something we all live every day and was, was the world he envisioned and which he was already kind of capturing in yeah. his own way. You mentioned his sort of, you, you sort of quote his vernacular sort of style of delivery, that sort of, gee, wow, you know, this sort of dry, laconic way of delivering. Yeah. I guess yeah. that's, it's hard not to dissociate Warhol when you think about him, his character, his personality within the, the within the work. Well, yeah. Although if you look at if if you sort of look at his um, interviews, he, it takes a long time for him to find that voice. Um, mm-hmm. It's really there's if you read the interviews, the wonderful Kenneth Goldsmith book of his interviews, uh, the early ones are really quite complicated and, and over. You know, he overthinks it and he lets other people like Malanga answer for him. Uh, it's it's the interview in which he says, I want to be a machine. He finds his voice. This woman, Gretchen Berg, who's his interviewer, invents this very, very laconic, very simple, unarty way of speaking. And he really ventriloquizes that afterwards. You can, you can really see that mm-hmm. she invents, she's very able, he loved that interview. He was very able to invent a voice for him. And he mimics it afterwards. Yeah, I think it's worth quoting, actually. You quote her in length. Um, well, the, there's just the very, very yeah. uh, famous line, if you want to know all about Andy Warhol, just look at the surface of my paintings and films and me, and there I am. There's nothing behind mm-hmm. it. And I think, and I, I mean, I, I, you know, reading everything on Warhol, in some ways that is the most accurate, most comprehensive understanding. There's nothing behind it. It's, it's just unraveling that nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, once, there's a, once there's a void, you can project anything into that void. And I think that's what critics and, and thinkers around Warhol have done for the last 50 years. So pop worked, but so could any number of other ways of uh, thinking him through. Yeah, and I guess that's what you've tried to do. I mean, not trying to do, it's what you do, uh, looking at his film work particularly, and also, well, mostly his film work, actually, I think, like Empire or the cowboy film, or uh, Trash. Well, some cowboys. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, th- there's uh, there's a great uh, text by Douglas Crimp, which is he titles "Every Generation Gets the Warhol They Deserve," mm. and it's and it's he's actually quoting another guy named Richard Meyer. But it's absolutely true. Now we think of him solely as the great businessman, which I think is more has much more to do with our own sort of priorities and values than it is with his um, his practice. And you could. You know, he's, he's he's the great filmmaker. He's the great meditative artist. You can you can he's the great pop painter. Mm. You can see him, however, uh, you please. And I just that's what I wanted to to make us aware that you can you can think through him through in, in any number of angles. Absolutely, but I think I suppose back, I want to go back to Empire really because of the <laughs> length of it <laughs> oh, uh, um, in more detail. Because as you say, it was shot at six hours, but yes. then he slowed the film down to eight. Right. And, um, you know, already it's a lengthy film. And I think most people will know it's actually just a, a continuous take of the building. Um, and you see the light shift across that, uh, the building. Right. Um, well, 45 minutes in, the lights go on and yeah. your heart will sing. And you'll, you'll, you're, it's, it's just this magical moment. And that's about it. Uh, that's, that's all, that ever, that, all mm-hmm. that ever happens. But, you know, you could, of course, say the same thing of a painting. It, it's just going to sit there and do nothing. And so does the film. I might add, uh, the interesting thing about Empire, it's the only film he 
co-credited mm. uh, with a guy named John Palmer, who actually had the idea. Because you'd think the great thing about yeah. Empire is the idea. Well, it wasn't Orwell's idea. Uh, he took the idea, and he was very, very reluctant ever to share credit. In fact, he was very good at taking credit for things he didn't really do, <laughs> like produce the Velvet yeah. Underground, etc. And um, and that's one. That's the only instant in which he actually is willing to admit that someone else had this brilliant idea to sit and 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 uh, watch it it's it is riveting in my yeah. head it is so not boring it's like the screen tests if you actually sit and you watch them they I are find the screen tests riveting yeah uh, but i think i was just actually i was reading a little earlier uh, earlier about the empire and i was re- come across someone called pamela lee and she was uh-huh. describing the process of sitting down and watching empire and this group of art you know art uh, critics and writers artists whoever and they're being sort of rigidly upright through the film and then eventually sort of falling into a state <laughs> of sort of you know lumber or lying on each other and this being a much more social experience of this break where the actual the physicality of yourself through the duration of what, having to sit and watch through this eight hour film right. comes into being in a way it's yeah. not like you're seduced by the image you're kind of in a way you have to endure it, I guess. Well, when you watch the screen tests, which are considerably shorter mm. at three minutes each, you can see people enduring being themselves mm. for three minutes. I mean, if you can watch on YouTube the Salvador Dali one, where you think, after being Salvador Dali for a lifetime, he can do it for three minutes, yeah. and he can't. He just collapses repeatedly in front of the camera. He makes you realize kind of how short eight hours are, but also how long three minutes can mm. be when you're just kind of uh, faced with yourself. Yeah, I remember watching Liza, Liza Minnelli's one. I thought that was particularly brutal. <laughs> I remember finding that uh, a particularly hard one to watch. Somehow. No, some they're they're you know they're very um, some some people enjoy them. They mm-hmm. really vogue it. You know, they really kind of perform it and are absolutely kind of playing to the camera. Uh, whereas others are 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 definitely suffering uh, through it. There's the the Cali Angel book. This complete. Um, um, screen tests is is, is she remarkable? She looks at every single one. Some um, people who were filmed multiple times. Sometimes it's war. Sometimes we know there was it was sort of a social thing, and they're sort of playing in front of a whole group of people. And other times they are suffering, you know, on their mm-hmm. own somewhere in the in the factory, having been abandoned to the machine, uh, which apparently everyone could. Uh, you you knew it was rolling because it was the cheapest machine possible, and so it was very very mm-hmm. noisy, buzzing alive uh, but of course you know unmanned uh, thing and yeah you talk about that you talk about actually the process by which Andy Warhol constructed the screen test do you want to talk about a little bit how he set that up sure well um uh, anyone who arrived at the, um, just about anyone I should say, at the factory was invited to do a screen test. Uh, and it was sometimes Warhol, but we know that a lot of other uh, sort of high-ranking factory males were also given that privilege. And sometimes it was a bit of a casting couch. Uh, it was never a real screen test. They weren't really testing for film. But what a great way to get anybody to do it, right? If mm-hmm. someone asked you, do you want to be in a screen test for a film? <laughs> Who's going to say no. Uh, and really, of course, what was being tested was your whole kind of personality, but you only found that out too late when you, the camera was rolling. Um, and sometimes, as I say, there, there was a whole kind of ritual around it in which a lot of people participated and watched you um, uh, perform or not in front of the camera. And other times you were left on your own. And sometimes people drifted in and out and you see people talking to someone who's off screen. Uh, apparently, the only instructions you were given were t- to blink as little as possible. 
so that it would be rather like a slightly moving uh, photograph. Some some people were given props, uh, candy bars mm. and 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 uh, other things that could sort of uh, occupy their time, uh, but mostly they were just sitting in front of a camera. And it's, they're they're wonderful to watch because they are really they do feel like just slightly moving cameras, and mm. you watch um, some people really. Um, are going to stare the camera down, and they always lose. The camera always uh, wins. Uh, like a battle. Yeah, yeah. despite that. But it's interesting when you describe this like unblinking quality, because mm. in a way, I think often Warhol conjures up this machine-like, scan-like, ambivalent, uh, let's say, construction of an image. Mm. Um, and that's often spoken about this, that yet cold, indifferent, uh, use of imagery. Yeah. Um, I wonder. Did you do you feel that too, or do you? Because or do you feel more that actually it's closer to uh, a feeling, or closer to a sense of identity, or even a personal response to well, something? Well, it, it changes a lot. I mean, <clears throat> haircut, for example, which is um, uh, Billy Name and Freddie Hercule and a few other people on a on a balcony in New York getting their haircut is beautiful. Mm-hmm. It is so photographically perfectly lit every shot is magnificent and it's as if he can say yeah i can i can do that you you want you want pretty i can do pretty (laughs) but he's instantly bored a lot of the shots in um sleep which by the way are not still it's not a still image of john giorno sleeping there's a lot of different edits and and images there are are beautiful i mean they're they're, the the shadowing and the lights are absolutely stunning as as is eat for example Mm. uh, robert indiana eating a mushroom if you ever watch it it's on youtube Um, uh, and there's this cat that's beautifully lit, and it, it's it's luscious. You know, it has all those kind of photographic qualities. Uh, but then there was other instances in which he was much much more um, uninterested. And in other cases, and Kelly Angel uh, points this out very clear. For example, Bob Dylan's uh, interview. They they were famously terrible rivals, uh, sort of. Um, who were uh, Bob, Bob Dylan, Dylan and, and Warhol? Really? Oh yeah, and fought over Edie Sedgwick and stuff, and for, in, for no as creative for as creative controllers thereof. Uh, and uh, he, Bob Dylan, is lit really unflatteringly <laughs> three times. He looks worse than everyone. And Bob Dylan, on his on from his perspective, he is extremely un. Uh, cooperative. He thinks the whole thing is stupid, and is is it's, it's absolutely apparent his disdain uh, for the whole thing. He was given an Elvis Presley pan- painting, which I think he um, traded for a couch or something. He, there was a real rivalry between them, whereby they they were both well, they were both outsiders. You know, they That's came true, from yeah. not that far true, away yeah. in the Midwest. Uh, they were both excellent. Uh, fakers in New York, and uh, you know it, it, it was there was the competition was very very um, very strong. They saw each other. I, I imagine they saw themselves as, as yeah, two outsiders yeah. from imagine, elsewhere. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, they, they, they it was much harder to perform in front of each other than anyone else. But yeah, they they had a rather well known uh, rivalry. rivalry. And Edie Sedgwick leaves Warhol, of course. The co the, the sort of um, uh, entourage to go be with. Uh, Dylan. So, although it's what their relationship is ambiguous, I don't want to suggest any other things. But yeah. <laughs> oh, but I, essentially, going back rather to the even 
where Warhol drifts, uh, I think it's in, is it in Couch or another of his It's films, in Biker Boy. It's also in Hustler, My Hustler. He suddenly drifts from the action to a kind of, what, a mundane or... Yeah. Sometimes uh, it, the camera drifts to outside the window or to an absolutely meaningless uh, corner of the room. I mean, it's like the f- camera f- dropped, you mm. know, and anything is being um, shot. And, and, and Jonas Mekas makes a point of this. Anything that was in front of his camera was beautiful and worth thinking about. Mm. Um, everything was being celebrated. So any person, uh, any 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 moment that was uh, placed before him um, was worth worth his attention. I guess the, the shift ultimately is because in that angle it's worth, but also the converse could be said they become worthless. Yeah, um, because they're being also reduced. You could argue. I mean, it depends on your viewpoint. There isn't it? ultimately it could be the other way around. They could be suddenly you can you know about as exciting as the radiator. Right. <laughs> you know? Although you know what's what's interesting about Warhol's is pr- his perspective. He knew nothing of for all that he's the great American artist. He knew nothing of mm. normal American sort of suburban everyday life in the '60s. He knew an impoverished uh, ghetto on the outside of Pittsburgh. And and then all he knew was the most g- glamorous, um, privileged, whether it was druggies and trannies or it was, you know, the, the very rich and the very celebrated. He never really, what he was exposed to in his life was actually extraordinarily unusual for a person in, 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 in the United States in that period. You know, so he, in a way, everything around him was kind of beautiful and, and magic. Mm. And how he managed to uh, achieve that is, is interesting. I mean, ultimately, he lived an incredibly uh, he lived life his own way. He he was in, very courageous in terms of what he did artistically and socially. I always think, you know, it's it's quite surprising he never got arrested or he never, well, there was no obscenity accusations. I mean, he was really pushing it and he was always somehow blessed and and able to live his life just the way he wanted. Because his films were ultimately quite explicit. I mean, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Blowjob, I suppose, is the most. But then, actually, I say oh, well, that's Blue explicit. But, yeah. No, Blue Movie is explicit. Yeah. I mean, there's there's no question yeah. what's going on. Uh, and it was it was sent you know, he mm. himself censored them in the early 70s. It's yeah, very he took, hard to just, see. Yeah, he took them away in 1972. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But there, I think oh, there's there's copies all in Pittsburgh. And Why did he withdraw them? Uh, well, th- there are different theories. Some say uh, it was really a strategy to make him the great painter. And that was a way for him to be... Uh, it was a money-making mm-hmm. strategy, you know. It was a uh, marketing strategy. Strategy. Uh, so he's he he is from the 1970s. What Robert Rosenblum has called a court painter. All right. He's 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 somebody who is associated with um, the upper echelons of American um, society and not with. Um, you know, the other yeah. side, the trannies and the druggies and so forth, although he always associated with all kinds of uh, people. You know? Yeah, and it ran through his work, right through to his death, really, that kind of influence or the interest, because he, he even returned to the imagery of trannies and so on. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, he does. He does. And um, he did a lot of unpopular stuff, the yeah. ladies and gentlemen, which is the mixed race uh, yeah. trannies and the torsos, mm-hmm. uh, which apparently you'd go to the factory and there are all these naked boys walking around and, and Warhol photographing him and all his his body. <laughs> Advisors telling him, "Look, this is not good for business." Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, he did, he did his own thing. But you know, he also had. In the, by the 1980s, he was despised. He was a dinosaur. He was an embarrassment. The the reviews are terrible. Uh, you know, he stops being the cool guy and becomes a kind of parody of himself. Although now we kind of are a renewed interest in late Warhol. Mm. Um, you know, we shouldn't forget I mean, the reviews of the self portrait with the the 
the, the spiky head. Um, yeah, the shock the week. Death, yeah. yeah, the shock week, the yeah. fright week, which now sell yeah. for all kinds of prices, were, were, were received miserably. Mm. Yeah, because when he died, it wasn't like yeah. You said yeah, as you said, his career was actually in a stall. Oh, we, yeah. oh, absolutely. And it's he in- was kind of, um, you know, his association with Bosco was good. Yeah. But he, you know, he um, supported some pretty less than desirable graffiti artists and stuff. He did. He wasn't backing all the most sort of winning horses artistically <laughs> uh, throughout the 1980s. And you know, if you think about it, what was exciting in the 80s, the the, the Jenny Holzers mm. and the Barbara Krugers and the Richard, Prince, they had, that had nothing to do with you know Warhol's pictures of uh, endangered uh, panda bears. You know, it was absolutely completely he was in his own world but he stuck to his guns you know mm. he did his thing and really um he was okay as long as the money was coming in which it was between mtv and the rest of it he was kind of he was happy he was, happy. He was well happy he, <laughs> he was satisfied he was doing uh, what he what he wanted there's a great interview with benjamin buclo in which buclo says oh you know you don't like these new painters you're different you're like a conceptual guy and warhol says no no, that's not me. You know, he, mm. he he's not interested in being saved uh, critically. He just wants to continue making his work and, and doing what he did. Mm. Uh, in that sense, I admire him. So let's go back to parts of your feature, because really it settles on this idea of death, actually. Yeah. The aspect of death, this moment. And I think it's beautifully encapsulated where you say this sliver of time mm. between the living and the dead. Right. And this fascination with that. And... I mean, it was a preoccupation with Warhol throughout his career. You know, we had the suicides, the electric chair, mm. uh, the accidents and disaster series. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what his preoccupation with death is? And uh, I know this is a big subject. Um, <laughs> well, I, I think he really was hyper aware of the passing of time. And that, that's what you see in his films, is, is the, each of the guests in the screen tests are being made aware of the way he sees time passing very, very slowly. And this absolute awareness that he had, and we know from his conversations over the phone with Geld Soller through the 60s, that there was going to be one moment of all which was irreparably different from all the others, which is this moment in which life passes to death. Okay, and that is the subject of the suicide, um, and the subject of, of all the death and disasters is is finding and prolonging as long as possible um, that instant. And I, I think it, it obsessed I think his awareness of it mm-hmm. is literally as if it was it was imminent always. Uh, and of course then when he is actually shot at uh, in um, by you know Valerie Solana since 1968, he's actually he's confronted with it in a way. And certainly the, he's much more fearful after that. The factory closes down, the door is no longer uh, open and his willingness to expose himself to the crazies, as he called them, uh, is um, is is much less, uh, but all those kinds of those those moments. I mean, the shadow installation is just that. It's it's a, it's an image mm. that will will last for a flicker of time before uh, disappearing forever. And I, I think, you know, this makes him a very existential artist. I think he was an existential artist. I think he was looking at time and space as it passed very very um, very very consciously. But as I say, it's more like a fashionista than it is like a monk. Okay, he was he was interested in in. 
in the passing of time also in, in a very, very, um, let's say, superficial way. So the, the, the fascination with beauty, with, um, with youth, with things that are there, and then gone. They're very old-fashioned art themes, really. You're right, but also, I think it goes back to that nothing as well, because mm. suddenly, you know, when I look at the electric chair, you know that conjures, although as you're saying, it's yeah, it's as superficial and flat as the as the material it's printed on. Mm. But you can't help but um, fear it. It becomes this luminous, evocative shadow that you're staring into, and the, you think of all the people that have been electrocuted there, or even your own body being electrocuted there, and the fear of that. Um, so, I mean, they're incredibly uh, rich in terms of their formation, in terms of the viewer. I think the experience with them. Um, and equally the suicide, you know, seeing that guy and it's a still of them jumping and you're looking at their legs slightly raised up mm. and you, you, you can't help but wonder that, that pose, that movement. Well, there's the famous story where uh, one of his entourage, the dancer Freddie Herco, around I think 63 or 64, commits suicide. He dances out of a window, and Warhol famously said, "Why you should have? He if only he had told me, and I Mm -hmm. would have filmed it." Which can be interpreted in any number of ways. Of course, one might think it is incredibly cynical and um, callous, or a kind of a you know what he was obsessed with his own life but also a kind of commemoration well if you're going to do this 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 such a huge gesture well let 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 me preserve it forever let it let it let, let it, it stay live. with it let yeah. it live so yeah. to speak uh, but of course you know how you interpret warhol is kind of the point of my art you you can you can see him however you please if you want to see him as the, as the great meditative uh, thoughtful artist you can if you want to see him as the capitalist heartless kind of um blank you mm. can as well but there's a lot of sides to him that i think are ignored for example in interviewing a lot of uh, factory people he was very silly he was giggly and a practical joker i think for example in the films he comes across as being this kind of um cigar store indian type who doesn't who never cracks a smile mm. and there was i think a certain performance of that but if even if you just look on youtube and look at the um the clips of him he's always goofing around really you know? oh he's on saturday yeah. live and yeah. he's being very silly and he says mm. very funny things like when they ask him if he thinks uh jasper john is good he says he's great oh why do you think he's great oh he does great things with chicken. He's a great cook. As if he didn't know that they were asking him, you mean a great artist. Yeah. So, But he always saw the funny side of things, and sometimes the dark, darkly funny side of things. So there's a lot of a Warholiana that I think is, uh, believe it or not, still left to be explored because terms like pop and, and certain mm-hmm. assumptions and stereotypes around his uh, personality, which becomes a kind of caricature, become cemented as real, and they're, they're, they're not. There's so much more kind of to discover. Yeah, I mean, the countless, as you said, the, we've not even touched upon yet the, um, the, the boxes, time the time capsules, and of course, all the sort of screen tests and so on, and the films, and I mean, so many of those films actually have not even been really seen. I no, think. no. Um, but also within that, it's this numerous sense of and the of, of stuff, okay. Uh, but also and the repetition mm. as well. Mm. I mean, maybe the two things don't necessarily sit side by side. But um, what I was interested in is also unpicking a little bit of that repetition that exists in Warhol. You know, just in terms both in terms of the bodily process of the screen, but also maybe um, allowing the division of each moment to sit in constant formation as well. Well, in terms of Warhol's, you know, one of his famous sayings was 
anything you try in life, you either do it once and never again or every day for the rest of your life. Okay, so it was it was either this the uniqueness, mm-hmm. like the moment of death, or it was this the way we experience time, which is one after the other, after the other, after the other. And so things are either incredibly special or extremely uh every day mm-hmm. and those kinds of and he's you know his routines are, are well known and he documented his own routines i mean it's it's just interesting that he sort of knew he knew that you know that people would actually be interested in those time capsules i mean imagine you know taking all the contents of your desk and and, and wiping them into a box and storing it away knowing dead yeah. For dead certain that people like me <laughs> and all of the other sort of Warhol boffins, boreholes as I call us, um, would one day actually go through every single shred, every last sort of old invitation and invoice. Because I think he understood the, that giving that kind of value to life, and in this case to his own life, I think was really ultimately his project. Mm. And so it's 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 there's a kind of um, it's not just the time is important; it's it's his. Time time his artistic lifetime is what is being somehow cherished and he he self uh, creates that mythology very very mm. effectively for someone so uh, supposedly passive and, and sort of allowing accidents which to a certain degree he often did in his art making um, he there's an incredible ability to document self document exactly the way he 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 wanted uh, because he was so um, methodical and so comprehensive about it so it's mm. it, it's a mesmerizing as a life project. I mean, it's it's um, it's crazy, yeah. but it's it's rather rather uh, uniquely wonderful. The only one the one thing I want to come back to actually, okay, I please. forgot, is um, Pop and Dada, which I'd never. Yes, I, that's two words I'd never thought about in terms of their father yes. associations <laughs> yeah. before. Yeah. So Warhol <laughs> very early um, understand notices that these two terms, Pop and Dada, as you say. Uh, were both sort of uh, has something to do with father, mm. uh, but I think it's also it's interesting to look at Warhol's use and understanding of language, uh, because again he's always considered sort of semi-literate and and mostly just saying gee and great and mm. wow, and then when you look at his observations of, and his use of language, it's actually kind of wonderful. So for example, and I mentioned this in my text, um, he's he says when he want when he dies on his tombstone he wants he wants to be blank and he says no I want one word and that word is figment now that is a really carefully chosen word right that is not a Mm. random you know and figment is a wonderful so it's an image that exists and doesn't exist uh, only in your mind Mm. it's it's, it's an extraordinary kind of choice and and um, so I think like noticing the pop and data, which neither had I noticed, they were yeah. like these, he actually, his sensitivity around language among his many talents was, you know, was actually quite, um, uh, was, was astute. quite astute. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I think even in fact, actually that grave, uh, there's like a, didn't, uh, there's like a 24 hour broadcast or like an online is uh, there? I think that's true. On I don't the Warhol know. I just Foundation know website, I think you can. Uh, oh, really? There's like a live, I guess, like a rolling. <laughs> people placing Campbell's soup cans <laughs> yeah. once again. Nothing much happens, to be honest. Upon it's it, rather yeah. Rather sadly. Yeah. Uh, but you're right, that word figment, I think that's a good way to uh, draw a close for the moment, oh, anyway, right. on Warhol. But sure. we'll come, hopefully, get a bit more time with that. Uh, and we'll return, we'll come to uh, Omar Khalif, who's talking today about the Berlin Biennale. Um, 
Uh, before we sort of head straight into the sort of curatorial remit, because I think you come at it head on, uh, I thought we'd maybe start just by unpicking some of the works that uh, are on show. Um, and you talk a little bit more about the performances uh, than you do about maybe some of the works on display. Uh, could you talk, just, can we just start talking a little bit about um, Linda, uh, not Linda, uh, Adam, Linda, and uh, Sharon Ashat? It's interesting that you decided to start with the work, which is the strategy that I decided to avoid, because in a sense, one of my arguments with the Berlin Biennial is that it never really amounted to the sum of its parts to the extent that my relationship to any work was completely disavowed or neutralized or the ability for a work of art to kind of create a space where affect some kind of affect occurs you know it was it, it it didn't happen for me except in these kind of moments that didn't seem to be necessarily part of the master narrative of the biennial and one of those things was this screening actually it's a screening by Shayar Nashat which is an interpretation of his lover Adam Linder's performance which is an adaptation of Jean Cocteau um, choreography from 1917 um, and actually it, it's worth pre-saying this that I'd seen Adam Linder's work at the American Realness Festival um, a few months before in New York and I was really confused by his work and wasn't sure if I liked it and he did a project called Cult to the Built on What mm -hmm. which was this homage to the podium as a, a kind of uh, a stage object or something in its own right and it, it felt to me quite interesting as if he was somehow talking about speculative realism and object-oriented ontology which is something we talked about last time yeah, when we were we on did. the show yeah. uh, in relationship to Mark Leckie and I started to think wow this is interesting that this figure is talking about this in relation to the body and the limitations of the body, which was something that came out a lot in the biennial, actually, in terms of the almost peripheral things that uh, caught my attention. And in this John Cocteau um, uh, film that was screened in the, um, in this theater, um, it's, it's quite a simple uh, formulation, really. It's three dancers competing for attention and the way that they have to survive in this narrative is to continue to perform themselves and to outshine each other and it for me tied into something much more broad culturally which is this idea that in the era of the internet we are consistently being forced to perform ourselves which is a title of a feature that I wrote for our monthly maybe mm -hmm. three years ago um, and it's the idea of the rise of the selfie and the groofy you know we return to this idea of the aesthetics of narcissism and we can we can go back to cross and quote her writing on video art, but it, it, what's interesting for me is this idea of um, the selfish idea of the individual performing performing themselves as an avatar almost. And what what was interesting was this formal transposition of something that was quite historic and this formal practice of dance actually embodying this and in a way the camera almost zooms in and zooms out at, at these characters almost in the same way that I that despite the the kind of very meticulous cinematography and the epic scale of the projection almost in a kind of uh, DIY selfie kind of as form or aesthetic and I thought that was interesting in terms of the way it kind of jarred me because it felt like the kind of almost haphazard nature of the movement didn't sit on this epic screen and so I became immersed in, in that space and particularly Adam who's the choreographer and one of the dancers in the thing he 
in order to glean or gain attention, he takes on a more and more depraved kind of persona. He starts licking the floor, he starts licking objects, licking people, he starts uh, cross-dressing. And uh, not that cross-dressing is depraved, but, you know, it's more that he's he's referencing a historical moment. And the idea is that he will do anything to be noticed. And actually, this links in some ways, maybe we could yeah. a Warholian conversation, which we could have later. Um, but... I I just felt that there was something in there that was kind of very allegorical and appropriate to what curators do when they have their biennial. And it's like they are shouting to be heard. They want to be heard. But at the same time, they want to fit into this very neat narrative, which is the biennial triennial narrative. They want to be able to say that they are also aware of particular artists, but also they have discovered their own artists, that they have um, been able to, they have to perform myself. And the idea of performing for me continued to come again in another work which was for me I found quite interesting which was a piece by Jimmy Robert who um, is an artist who I always thought was a dancer but actually isn't a dancer he was interested in movement and as you know more than anyone he was interested in Yvonne Rayner he was him and Ian White collaborated Mm -hmm. on numerous occasions and there was this piece in the biennial that is really not impossible to document almost in the sense that the photograph in the magazine doesn't do it justice. Unfortunately, that's the thing with works of art is I think the impossibility to document them, the mm-hmm. experience. And, and if in a way, the, what I'm arguing is that the visceral experience of the biennial was actually the only good thing. And maybe that is a good thing. Maybe actually I'm not being so negative about the biennial. We'll get to the negative. <laughs> but anyway, the, this piece was quite interesting because it was um, Jimmy documenting this um Brazilian dancer in this Oscar Niemeyer building and he was uh, and her the 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 drag queen the dancer is a drag queen and she's her name is actually in in um, Portuguese it means hair um, and she's you know jiggling about in this space and but very freely and what the idea was this was a critique on the idea that a mo- of a modernist architecture and the idea that it could contain the body in any particular way and this the what was interesting was formally how he chose to relay that narrative wasn't through a traditional filmic way but was to really narrow make it into almost the size of an ipad and create these two screens and then projected them onto these flowing sheaves of paper which in a sense were choreography in themselves uh, and it was almost about the idea that you know with performance we kind of happen on or into these spaces and it was almost felt like you were like and the film was shot on eight mil and it was very and there was a, there was a poem that was, you know, there were layers to it. There was a poem it. by, uh, what's her name? Anna Christina Cizola. Yeah, she was talking about yeah. a, a particular oppressive moment. In it. And But ultimately, the main thing that grap- that kind of captured my imagination was this sense of intruding on something very private, which actually, in the same thing you could argue with, um, happened with Adam Linder and Shayar Nashat's piece, which was this grappling with this individual's ego, this idea of him trying to gain a kind of sense of attention amongst his peers or amongst this space. And I think that that's endemic of a wider cultural trend is that yeah. with the stream of the internet, you know, we have a proliferation of content, but we're just always swimming. And how do we find those neat, beautiful, sensitive moments? And I think that's kind of, that's a nice thing that I took away from the Berlin. Yeah, because you, let's let's go back then a little bit more and sort of expand upon Juan Gatan's um, sort of idea behind the uh, biennial. 
And uh, I mean, you talk, I mean, actually, uh, an interesting point um, around the, uh, you, when you talk about history eroding the borders between specific mediums, geographies, and political situations in order to propose an alternative context for the experience of art, its narratives, and its discontents. Um, well, I mean, I don't know what that means. <laughs> well, you know, this idea that somehow, and I think this picks up on when we can talk about documenta, but uh, mm-hmm. the idea that history itself is this tool or this material that breaks down the boundaries mm-hmm. um, and how this in a way has become a trend uh, and I think that's really where Gatan is kind of forging these kind of polar- uh, sort of content really so you talk a lot about the ethnographic museum and how these these polar or these con- sort of contextual shared spaces sort of really don't work for you. Do you want to talk a little bit more about your experience? Well, maybe I could start backwards because okay. actually the main problem that I have of the Berlin Biennial really is the site for the main venue, which was the, it, it has another, it has a, a more formal name, but it's known as the Dalem. And it's an ethnographic museum, which is about 45 minutes to an hour outside of the center of Berlin. And uh, then another venue called the House of Waldse, which is a small villa, which is about a five minute cab ride. And, um, I was really confused about the po- politically or curatorially why Juan Gaetano had chosen to use this ethnographic museum as a site for this. And what I found out actually after I wrote this, this article was that there was there is this desire to move this museum into the center of Berlin. And then in a sense that this biennial was a moment or an opportunity to reflect on that museum, its significance, its importance. And that really, that that was interesting because I felt that the whole time I was there and the idea that the biennial almost was part of a regeneration agenda, which maybe we could talk about how all biennials Mm -hmm. fall into a regeneration agenda, felt very obvious to me. Um, And it felt obvious at the expense of history, actually, really, which is ironic considering that the point of the biennial is that it wants to use history as a tool to look at art and to think about the erosion of particular hierarchical positions. And actually what it was, was this, this ethnographic museum with these African masks to um, Mayan statues um, and interspersed within the space were contemporary artworks. And there was at the opening of the biennial hundreds of people and myself included, none of us stopped or cared that we were walking through these dense passages that were layered with history and meaning and that the material in that space the the origin of that material was questionable. Um, you know why why are these African masks here on the outskirts of Berlin? Who brought them here? No, none of those questions were things that anyone engaged with curatorially in mm-hmm. terms of the the context of the the biennial, but also from an audience perspective. You know you've just travelled an hour out of Berlin and you've got to get back for that party at six p.m. You know and you've got another place to go to and you don't know how big that place is and so you're just running around and watching people like running around like crazy and then. I, I was with a friend of mine who was a colleague who turned around and said, oh, isn't it so beautiful? What a beautiful setting to just like rest my eyes on this African statue. And I just was like, no, I just screamed at her. I said, no, this is, this is, this is not window dressing. This is not decorative. This, these objects embody a history. And it's shocking to me that you are engaging with these works in this particular way. And do you think then in that instance there, do you think that's the fault of the curator in a way not to foreground or position those very mati- those artifacts within a more careful construction? Or do you think in, it's an inevitable failure of showing any contemporary work within that context? I don't know. I, 
it's it's a difficult question and unless I curate the Berlin Biennial in that context and I have to suffer the huge bureaucratic I'm sure bureaucratic decisions and uh, um, positions that one is encouraged to or options that one is encouraged to use but you know I saw a talk by Clementine Delise um, at the Whitechapel maybe a month ago and she was talking about how she found the most liberating thing for her retreating from the art world and working in an ethnographic museum and how that was a real space of thinking about how you could untangle new narratives about history and I haven't been to, I haven't been to her museum in Frankfurt where she works but the way she spoke about it was so eloquent and so considered that actually it it, it really stands Juan Gaetan up in a sense because he doesn't speak about this these this context in any interesting mm. or meaningful way and so beyond that so if we if we put that aside no just just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. just one second because you talk a little bit about um the artifacts themselves and their kind of history and the way mm. they may have been looted. And I wanted to sort of think more about that term because you, if you use that word and think also of the, you, the, the curatorial framework and the notion of the curator that travels across the world to unpick or kind of find or, you know, is that another form of, do you think, cultural looting? And what are those, you know, ramifications, if so? I don't think it's cultural looting. I think that's, it's a very different thing. And, you know, I, I, I you know, the, I don't want to dwell too much on this because I also come at it from a very personal view, where which is that I'm Egyptian and so many Egyptian artifacts have been are in museums in the Western world and I have to pay to see them. And when I ask, I remember being at the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford and asking uh, a curator, you know, have you ever considered giving these things back? And he said, well, the care that we give these objects here is infinitely better than any care they will ever get in Egypt. And that shocked me. And those positions are what I'm interested in questioning. And that's part of... Um, my, my kind of conscious political uh, conscious political position that I want to question. So, in a way, um, I think it's very very different from you know uh, culturally looting and going around biennials and picking artists. I do think that there is something about actually to go back to this idea of the internet something about biennial hopping that is very much like web browsing which is like you know you go through it's like hyperlinks you know you you have a contact you have one contact in a place and then that contact leads you to another contact leads you to another contact and you stay within the very safe hyperlink zone that you are allowed to function in and then within that space you try and find the artist that maybe hasn't been given a platform because you know you don't want to be seen to be giving all the artists the same mm -hmm. platform unless you're going to take an artist who is on a platform like it Adnan was really coming to the fore when she was exhibited at Documenta again and give them a platform that is infinitely larger than any other platform that anyone else can offer them. And I think that, that that's quite different. That is more about the relationship to the internet. But I think what I'm... my The main issue for me was that the, to experience the contemporary work was impossible because I couldn't extract myself from the context that yeah. I was in and I felt almost sad for the artists that their work was positioned in this way and I'd, I'm not inv I was I didn't dig in to find out whether the artists were offered the opportunity to engage with the mm -hmm. site in a more detail um, or not but it, it just I found that problem I found that interesting I mean the, I mean the thing with Berlin in a fun, in a way it's because it it's kind of a city with almost too much history. The last hundred years of that city, I mean, it's nonstop. 
there is no it almost doesn't have a break in terms of history you know from the uh, second world war to the cold war and the berlin wall and i mean there's an endless amount of history there and equally you know the house on Wolsey was you know owned by a jewish industrialist that was then forced to be sold to the Nazi, occupying nazis at that time you know it's it's interesting i think the problematics that are around the berlin biennale is manifest everywhere i mean does an artist have to respond to those things or do they just you know accept the situation and kind of casually present their work i think these are the you know the, they are serious problematics and uh you know they're interesting i just wondered as a viewer i mean were those things really not that present or you know did you not find that they were you know whether they were they always important to you understanding the work is what i'm sort of asking you mean the f the curatorial framework yeah. no because in a way that the theme is almost like impossible to illustrate so and i don't think he really attempted to illustrate it in any meaningful way and i don't think that there was signposting to enable one to understand you know the one gaitan line of thought and i tried digging in reading interviews and what i was surprised about was that his examples were very much kind of the ones that you were giving me a second ago which was he said when i was first appointed to the, to the, to do this the first thing i wanted to do was to go to india because i'd never been to india and i wanted to know what it was like to work mm -hmm. as an artist in india and i'm like okay and then he talks about going to the far east and then thinking about relationships between you know the far east and berlin and for me one of the things that would have been amazing, and maybe this is just what I would like to see, and that's selfish and whatever, is I would like, Berlin for me is one of those cities that I've never been able to have a relationship to. I find it cold. I feel like it as, uh, you know, the whole narrative of Berlin is one that I never am able to access. I always feel like an outsider in Berlin. And I, and, but yet so many of artists and colleagues talk about a sense of community and one thing that the Berlin Biennial has never done and I've been to four in those four is it's never really sought to unfold the complexity and intricacies of that art scene and why Berlin was such an important site for production mm -hmm. and you know is it is it because of the weight of history maybe yes and maybe that's that could have been a way in and in a sense there was no real way in to this story for any of us and then on another end of the spectrum there was also some really strange formal choices so for example you felt that he was referencing every biennial triennial and documenta so whether it was a choice of artists or whether it was a placement of things so like irene koppelman who was in the cave she had Almost the hang almost resembled Ital Adnan's hang in the Documenta Halle. The work is very different, but it was, you know, slight, uh, simple, colorful paintings occupying this central space in, in a kind of, um, and then almost like, here I am, here I am, look at me, look at this artist, you have to know this artist. And it, just the shape of that space and the, the location of it to the other venues kind of felt very similar. And I guess what I, one of the things that I'm asking here is, you know, is there, uh, like, have the have biennials, in a sense, confused what their original function is? I mean, what are biennials for? Are they to meet a regeneration agenda? Are they to experiment curatorially? And as an institutional curator, our, our eyes are consistently colored by every biennial and triennial. And we're encouraged to see them because if we don't see them, we're not in on the conversation. But I've been to every bi major biennial in the last 50 years, and I can't recall too many moments that 
truly moved me or that I have picked up on again and tried to um, bring in into the work that I do. And in a sense, that's the question is, what is what is their function? And the, my answer is actually like one of one of the points that I often make recently is it's been very interesting to see biennials take on what I think a very stagnant form and the rise of the art fair as really a social context for the yeah. art world, which you know the proliferation of them. I mean, you can argue you can put mm. aside the entire market politics that 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 it involves, but for example, I I do a lot of work in North Africa and the Middle East, and I was I go to Sharjah Biennial in Art Dubai every year. And usually when it's a biennial year, Art Dubai is very busy. And when it's not a biennial year, Sharjah biennial year, the Art Dubai is a bit quieter. And last year, two years ago, I went to Sharjah biennial and it was absolutely quiet. And then the next year I went to Art Dubai during an off biennial year and I thought no one's going to be here. And I had never seen more museum directors, more curators, more critics from all over the world in the Middle East. And I was, it became apparent to me that maybe the context of the biennial wasn't so interesting for so many people and that the art fair had taken on a new life and a new form. And actually maybe it's because there's something slightly more sincere about an art fair and what its functional role is. And I think that that's, and also it's more interesting because you're actually rubbing shoulders with covert um, people, with people who are hiding, mm. whether their money, laundry, the money is laundered, whether it's arms dealing or whatever, and you can be sitting next to an arms dealer talking about how she wants to take her father's arms dealing money and do good with it, you know? Mm. And that's much more interesting conversation than anyone that I had at Berlin <laughs> Biennial. You're yeah. right. I mean, ultimately, I mean, the Venice Biennale has always been, com- well, increasingly complicit with the market, despite its pretenses not to be. And I think you're right, in a way, this kind of gilding of a kind of practice or even a, a remit of why these works are drawn together is increasingly perhaps, well, maybe you say preposterous, uh, you know, but uh, or lyrical or whatever they are. And maybe they are being sort of drowned out by the uh, the more market forces that seem clearly more defined. And we, and, and we should also not forget that biennials are really places where artists sell their work because you know galleries go in there you know I mean I, rem- I remember going to an artist at Documenta whose gallerist had paid for the majority of his production of his work and I said wow congratulations and the first thing he said to me was I've sold all the editions <laughs> and you know he had a great venue at Documenta, boom, you know, all everyone. So the the suggestion that because it somehow uh, um, occupies a particular history does not mean that it is somehow uh, its hands aren't soiled by the practical realities of having to survive as an artist. And actually, I'm not criticizing that. It's more the worthiness of this project in particular, which which made me look back at the Istanbul Biennial, the La Charge Biennial, Berlin Biennial 7, uh, Documenta, which I actually a really, which for me is my favorite of any of these things. You yeah. know, it's, 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 I mean, it's undeniable that Documenta had some beautiful moments in it, Documenta 13. Um, and that, that's really, that's really that. And Liverpool Biennial and yeah. etc. Jill, I, I see you scribbling down a few notes. Did you want to ask Omar anything just while I've got the moment to? Uh, yeah, I, that was very interesting. Yeah. I just, um, I thought it was interesting when you speak of curating as having this kind of derivative moments from precedence, which is just the kind of critique we gave to artists for so long. You know, if you did something that had already been experimented with, it was somehow uh, invalidated. Uh, but I'm, I'm interested um, also, uh, you described really beautifully, I think, this work by Jimmy Robert. And um, 
and and somehow he succeeds in overcoming the the, the straitjacket of the biennial. Uh, I find that so interesting that to somehow get around the curator <laughs> is somehow a success, where the curator I thought was meant to be somehow <laughs> enabling. Um, did you want to talk about that? About artists having to somehow t- regain control of uh, you know the context or the way in which they're seen. I mean, I. I don't want to say that all curators are like that. <laughs> Being one, I would hope that art, I don't straitjacket artists or that they want to have a conversation. But I, I have talked to many an artist who have found, especially when they're in group shows or they're asked to do a new commission, you know, one of the things about biennials is artists are often asked to do a new commission, but they said, you know, this is the theme. And the artist says, but my work is about this and I would love to be in your biennial it's a great platform but I don't want to make an illustrative work or a didactic work and so in a way they have to try and find uh, a space to create something and what's interesting is that Jimmy Roberts work was one of the few pieces that weren't commissioned by the biennial and actually it was an ongoing project that he was doing and I spoke to Jimmy and he said he said you know this is what I'm working on you're welcome to use it in the biennial or not and then in a way it kind of feels I mean, the reason it succeeds, I think, is a number of reasons. One, because I don't think it is trying... um, It's not trying to be more than it really is, in a sense. I think there is a sincerity in it. And ultimately, what... I think made it powerful in that overwhelming space was the delicacy that it it formerly kind of possessed. And there's something about small things and small moments and being able to build the relationship of a work that... You know, in mega exhibitions, you often lose because it's like being at a fair. I mean, I don't mean art fair, but like at a carnival. You know, really, you're just waiting to get to that cocktail reception. You're waiting to meet that funder or wherever you're waiting to see the work of art that everyone's been talking about. If you have 300 works, you have to see in two days. And in a way, that was a piece that made me stop and not care about all of those things. Although ultimately, I was there for five days and I didn't feel... I did nothing for the last few days because I had no no real desire to really re-engage or to go back. But just to finish that bit is I think that the, the notion of the curator as an euphorial voice is an interesting thing, but at the same time, if it, I feel like if it dominates the work to the point that the curator is the artist almost, which is what all biennials do. Like if you look at the recent Whitney Biennial and the division of the three floors and read every review that trashes the biennial, people don't talk about the artist's work. They talk about the curators and their selections. And they don't say, oh, this was a bad work by Gretchen Bender. This was a bad work by mm-hmm. Yuri Aaron. This was a bad work by X, Y, and Z. They talk about the curator's selection. And it becomes like the biennial is about the curator. And so I think we're in... You know, but there are certain politics around, and the notion of where we are now with curatorial policies. Yes. We are slightly running out of time here, um, so um, I, I feel a bit crisp for here. Time, we suddenly went out. Um, I'd like to say my sincerest thanks to both Tilda Williams and Omar Khalid for joining us today. Thank you. Um, more of which can be found in the current issue of Art Monthly. Many thanks for listening. <laughs>
104.4 FM. Indeed you are. Uh, many thanks to Art Monthly for tonight's Clear Spot. That will be repeated again at nine in the morning. Coming next is the second in a series of shows uh, from the Exotic Pylon featuring Johnny Mugwump. 104.4 FM. Mm-hmm.